The slightly BuzzFeed-like title of this episode actually holds some truth. If you're someone working with flexible energy systems and sector coupling, and aren't we all in some way, this episode is for you. I'm Daniel Sneum from Technical University of Denmark, and this is Energy Policycast. It's late here in the western part of Denmark, where small and large wind turbines pops up in any direction that you look. The kids have been put to bed, and far off in the distance I can see the red flashing lights of the handful of 7 megawatt nearshore wind turbines that have been spinning enthusiastically all day. If I look at today's power market statistics, it has been one of the very rare days in the last 6 months or so where power prices were hovering around zero. It's also been an extraordinarily windy and sunny day. In renewable terms, in this part of the electricity system, that means around 4 gigawatts peak power during the day, while consumption has been a little under 3 gigawatts. Conversely to the variable renewables, the combined heat and power plants, of which Denmark also has quite a few, has been generating just a few hundred megawatts during the day. Now that the wind is dying down, their production plan indicates an increase to around one gigawatt during the night. And this, ladies and gentlemen, demonstrates the virtues of a truly flexible coupling between the heat and the electricity system. And this also sets the stage for today's episode where the guest is me. Some time ago I published one of my favorite papers to work on, and coincidentally also the one that has been least cited. It's essentially a checklist of 40 different barriers to make your sector coupling more flexible between the heat and the electricity system. Say that you have a technology that can operate very flexibly in the electricity system. The study then lists all the challenges that you can run into before your wonderful flexible technology can become an active part of the energy system. But the study also offers solutions to take you well on your way to a very flexible energy system. So today's episode will focus on the barriers that can show up when you want to make the coupling between the heat and the electricity system more flexible. In the following, I'll be talking about heat and electricity but most of the concepts that I present actually apply to all kinds of flexible technology in the energy system. So why is heating particularly interesting? Well, first of all, heating and cooling makes up half of global energy consumption. So it's important to address regardless if we're talking decarbonization, security of supply, or any other subject pertinent to energy policy. District energy or district heating and cooling is a way to provide heating or cooling by transmitting it to end users from a source such as the Danish district heating plants mentioned earlier. Heating has sadly also become increasingly relevant lately due to the overall high energy prices and security supply concerns brought on by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
Flexible sector coupling can address these concerns by flexibly opting for different sources of heat supply in response to hourly or longer signals, such as prices on natural gas, for instance. The method I applied in the study was a review of more than 100 different documents of scientific and gray literature. And I've decided here in, in this episode only to focus on the barriers and just a selection of these 40 different barriers. The full study that you can see linked to in the show notes has the full list of barriers, of course, but also their suggested solutions to each barrier. Additionally, it also the show notes also show the uh, policy brief that is a somewhat more accessible version of it and even has an interactive version where you can click around and learn more about barriers and their solutions. Let's start out with the characteristics of each barrier. Each barrier applies to a certain technology. It shows up in a different part of the life cycle of that technology and it derives from a certain level of origin. So characteristics are technology, life cycle and level of origin. And I'll just briefly browse through these to give you an insight into them. In terms of technology, I've been looking at the cogeneration or combined heat and power plants. So that is plants that produce electricity and heating simultaneously or with some kind of flexibility between both. We have power to heat, and that's essentially turning electricity into heat by the electric boiler that uh, is equivalent to your kettle in the kitchen when you make a cup of tea, or more efficiently through a heat pump that converts electricity and possibly ambient heat from the air to heating in your home or in your district energy system in this case. Finally, we have one of the most important units uh, in order to district energy's claim to make energy systems more flexible, and that is the thermal storage, which just like other storages can shift and or disconnect uh, demand and production in time by storing heat and then supplying it in, in the periods where it's actually needed. So that was the technologies. Then a quick walkthrough of not all 40 barriers, but just a selection of those. I've made nine different main categories and then subdivided the barriers into these. The first one of them is the signal. So in order to be flexible, a technology needs some kind of signal to respond to. And the first barrier I'll just illustrate is the absence of a signal providing scheme. And that's basically just a fancy way of seeing, saying that a district energy plant needs, for instance, a market or an envir environmental signal to dispatch according to. I was looking at campus energy systems. Uh, so that is essentially district heating and cooling plants in the US at different campuses in the eastern part of US. They were uh, many places and eight out of the nine plants I surveyed was placed in places where they could potentially access a market from the independent system operator or the local energy market. But not all of them did for various reasons. One example 
of what a market can do is that, as I just discussed today in Denmark, we had a operation seen on the Ringkøbing district energy plant in Western Denmark, where they basically dispatched their electric boiler throughout the day, making their heating through this, in engineering terms, quite an inefficient way, but in the economist perspective, quite efficient way of utilizing the excess amount of wind and solar power in order to produce heat and store it in their heat tank. So that's an example of, of being exposed to an electricity market and signals from those and dispatching according to those. Then we have barrier number three, which is the electricity market, uh, fixed electricity prices in such markets. So that is the case where even despite being present in a market, you may actually face fixed uh, prices for consuming or producing electricity for various reasons. This was the case in a plant I visited in Connecticut, which was facing take or pay contracts on electricity, which didn't really incentivize any kind of flexibility, but just made them operate their electric chillers as more or less baseload, or at least according to the contract and not to the signals in the power market. Barrier number five is operational taxes on flexible district energy. And what this means is that you can have taxation on electricity use by, for instance, power to heat. And this has been seen as a barrier in many different places, including Denmark and Germany, the Nordics in general. And this is a way to make your flexible technologies more expensive. Let's say that you slap a tax on your power to heat unit. You essentially price it out of the market, basically uh, removing its ability to respond to market signals. Barrier number seven is the inflexible operational subsidies for flexible district energy. And what this means is that you, sometimes you want to subsidize uh, district energy solutions for various reasons, but these reasons may not encompass flexibility. So in the Danish case, uh, we deployed a three-tier feed-in tariff for combined heat and power plants, basically providing three prices per day and varying over the week, which meant that district energy plants were incentivized to produce electricity at certain times of the day. And this gave some kind of correlation with the peaks in the evenings, for instance, but it didn't really correspond to the actual signals in the energy system. That was part of the reason for this three-tier tariff being removed and combined heat and power plants being exposed to the electricity market signals instead by the late 2000s in Denmark. Barrier number nine is a big category, and that is the electricity grid tariffs, or rate design, as they say in the US, where uh, US cases and Danish cases and many other places have seen examples of challenges with the kind of design that district energy systems and, and their producing and consuming units are subject to. We've seen issues regarding the volumetric tariffs, so that is the uh, let's say euros per megawatt hour consumed in Denmark and the Baltics and the Nordics 
and uh, district energy systems broadly. And essentially the challenge is, is the same as we saw with the taxes, that you can make the operation of a, let's say, power-to-heat unit so expensive that it's actually not feasible and it's priced out of the market. In the US case, we see challenges with standby rates for combined heat and power plants. And this can be a barrier if the costs of the rates outweigh the benefits of the cogeneration itself. That could, for instance, be the case if standby rates uh, or charges are set according to an unlikely worst case scenario. And what, what just to, to drill into what these standby rates or charges means, is that the system operator requires some kind of uh, compensation to have replacement capacity available in case that the local cogeneration plant drops out for some reason. But let's say that you have a quite stable operating combined heat and power plant and you don't really uh, shift any cost to the system operator because you're able to operate it according to the system needs, then it may not be fair to be charged as though you were putting a strain and a cost on the system. In the US case, I saw the campus systems trying to anticipate grid peaks and adjust consumption of electricity behind their meter. And this was because they were charged uh, by the peak consumption that they uh, had against the grid behind the meter. This is perhaps a smart way to price your consumption. Uh, in economist terms, I think this is called Ramsey pricing, making the less flexible the ones that pay for consuming in the peak hours. And the campus systems actually managed to respond quite flexibly to, to these signals and anticipate the hours where the system would peak and then maxing out on their local production and reducing their consumption accordingly. Barrier number 10 is barriers for entry into the signal providing scheme. And what that means is that you can have uh, restricted market participation of uh, district energy resources. And some way to address this recently, this has been done in Europe already. And, and recently in the US, we also see movements in that part with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's order number 841 on electricity storage and the more recent uh, order 2222, which incentivizes or requires participation in markets operated by the regional transmission organizations and ISOs. And this is essentially a way to make more units face signals from the markets that they're present in. In terms of flexibility, this is a very desirable move and, and a plausible way to, to, to proceed. Of course, this has faced some uh, resistance from the incumbents, which may have business models that goes against this trend. The next main category is the investment category. So you need some kind of capital to invest in your flexible technologies. Here, barrier number 14 is the high risk premium for financing flexible district energy. And I have an anecdotal case from the US again, where a university wanted to finance their district energy uh, local system off their own balance sheets. But this was challenged by a credit rating agency 
that were evaluating the university's credit rating and which was perhaps unfamiliar with the uh, capabilities and, and the stable uh, characteristics of district energy, which potentially would make it downgrade the university's credit rating in case it made this investment. So that's some, in some way a way to represent a higher risk premium by, uh, for, for district energy. And this uh, was perhaps due to, uh, to the credit rating agency's unfamiliarity with uh, the technology that, that it in some way was evaluating indirectly. Barrier number 15 is the internal limitations from payback time and internal rate of return or discount rate requirements. So this area shows quite great variation. I saw campus energy systems in Pennsylvania apply some slack in their required payback time on investments, ranging between 10 or 20 years, depending on the degree of decarbonization that the investment would lead to. So having acceptance for longer payback times in case you would get additional decarbonization of a certain investment. Similar issues apply for discount rate requirements that may prohibit the typically more long-term projects with flexible technologies. It's seen for renewable energy in general, but also uh, within district energy where commercial operators have been referenced to apply between 10 or 20% discount rate for district heating projects. And this may limit the investment compared to more moderate rates required under, for instance, public or cooperative ownership. And I can say in Denmark, we apply a socioeconomic discount rate of 3.5% for these kinds of investments, which uh, certainly increases the feasibility compared to having between 10 and 20%. The next category is permitting, where barrier number 17 is placed, technology, bans and mandates. And in this case, we can have forced use of technology. So that could be heat supply by cogeneration as required in Denmark in large Danish cities, or it can be the forced use of fuel. Also in the Danish case, we have been forcing use of natural gas until recently which both of these uh, initiatives have been precluding power to heat investments, essentially ruling them out of the the list of options that you can apply in case you are forced to use natural gas. Somewhat similar in the US, we uh, in these days see fossil gas friendly processes uh, going on where it's banned to ban fossil gas. And yes, you heard correctly, It's a ban on banning the use of gas. So you cannot use other types of energy supply. You must remain on gas. And this, of course, precludes other technologies such as district energy, which, uh, all things being equal in in this perspective, reduces the sector coupling perspectives and the flexibility perspectives in the energy system. Barrier number 19 is friction in the permitting process. And here again, a US case saw a cogeneration project where the process of just crossing a road with a, a power cable took two years and $150,000 in legal fees. So this, this degree of cost in, in terms of time and money 
uh, can be uh, prohibitive, especially because district energy systems is typically not large-scale projects carried out, out by large-scale organizations, but more local, and such such hindrances may deter investments in technologies that we would like. next category is the technology category, which holds a various list of different kinds of technology-related barriers. The first one, barrier number 21, is the limitations in adjustability, ramping and lead time. And for heat pumps, this can mean that ramping and cycling in their production can be limited to avoid wear and due to just limitations in their technical capability. For cogeneration, Wear and tear can also be an issue in terms of ramping and cycling the equipment. We've seen differences between China, where the minimum load was down to 30% of full capacity, whereas in Denmark, this minimum load can be as low as 15 to 25%. Relatedly, the ramping rate has been 1% for combined heat and power plants in China. 1% 1% per minute, and in the, in the Danish case, 4% per minute. This just illustrates that there can be very large differences uh, in the technology of the plants, and improvements can be made in order to make them more responsive if you apply the best available technologies and procedures. Barrier number 25 is limitations in control and visibility. And in the U.S. case of Princeton's campus energy system, that is the sole system among the ones I surveyed, which allows a third party to control its equipment. And that is in order to respond to very short-term signals in ancillary services markets. The other eight uh, campus systems I was in contact with didn't feel secure or didn't have the incentive to allow this kind of third-party access and control of their systems. They, in their cases, in the case of of New York and New Hampshire and Massachusetts, referenced applying phone or email or text messages to respond to signals from the system operators. And just to illustrate uh, one challenge that that these demand response or just responding to signals can meet, In a Vermont case, uh, where they did try to enroll in a demand response uh, scheme, they found it problematic that signals often were given outside business working hours, where staff was not present to accommodate this change in demand. So actually, they ended up opting out of the demand response program again. This is a very practical issue that you can run into in case that you don't have this automatic control or third-party access to your systems. Barrier number 26 is the high temperature systems. So district energy systems uh, initially in their first generation were steam-based systems. Essentially that is steam running through pipes in the ground or above ground, feeding heating into buildings uh, in the nearby area. This is a, not a very efficient way to distribute the heat. It's associated with losses of of, uh, heat, of course, but also uh, the associated water. And it also means that technologies that can uh, increase or enable flexibility in district energy systems are not that relevant to include. 
particularly uh, heat pump efficiency increases if the temperature is lower. So having boiling point uh, district energy plants does not allow or essentially doesn't make uh, heat pumps relevant here. Also, uh, storing steam is not that easy comparing to storing hot water. And storing hot water is done on a regular scale in district energy systems just equivalent to the way that you store uh, your hot coffee in a thermos. Um, essentially large tank with hot water or even a very large pit with warm water that you can draw on in the periods that you need it. The next category is just a small one called physical environment and here barrier number 31 is land availability. And that is, I found that in almost all the cases I've surveyed in the US, uh, these were placed as district energy systems usually are in urban environments. And urban environments uh, can be a challenge because land space or space is constrained. So adding new technologies, for instance, a thermal storage can be challenging when all you have is parking lots and buildings placed all over. Uh, not leaving a lot of, of room to, to add new technologies. The next penultimate category is the bounded rationality, where barrier number 32 is present, and that is limitations from organizational bounded rationality. And I should just elaborate on what bounded rationality is because I didn't know that when I entered into this project. Bounded rationality is essentially that no one can necessarily be fully informed about all the background information or data in order to make the best informed decision. So everyone's rationality is bounded because no one can be informed about the full amount of data on which to make a correct decision. So it's not a way of pointing fingers, it's basically just a way of saying that making decisions is hard and you make the decisions that you can based on the available data. But in case your available knowledge and data is insufficient, you may make the wrong decisions. And that takes us to barrier number 32, which is limitations from organizational bounded rationality. Flexibility is typically not a primary product so conveying the message of increased flexibility by investing in certain technologies may not be in the rationality or in the pool of knowledge of the decision makers in those places. This was noted by uh, staff that I talked to in Pennsylvania, where they said that the everyday logic of operation can be difficult to convey to the top level management of the campus energy system and university overall. Barrier number 35 is limitations from individual plan staff's bounded rationality. And again in Pennsylvania, I met staff that was referring a case where the uh, lack of trust in the optimization tools used in the district energy plant uh, resulted in occasional manual override. and at least at one point this manual override had resulted in damaged equipment. So it can have quite uh, real consequences of having a bounded rationality in those kinds of systems. 
The final category is the acceptance. And here we see barrier number 39. The last one that we'll discuss in this episode is the limitations from incumbent acceptance. And the incumbents are typically the utility, the existing utilities in the area. And flexibility in the district energy and electricity system interface can introduce new actors and can entail a shift in business models and structures of the incumbents. And this can be seen as, or it can actually be, a direct competitor to the existing electricity supply industry. And barriers posed by the incumbent utilities might be just unintentional regulatory artifacts from earlier times, or or it can be deliberate obstruction tactics. This may belong to the past, because at least among the campus systems I was surveying, the utilities were actually perceived with some understanding, whereas they may previously have been obstructing uh, entities. This closes off the list of a selection of the 40 different barriers and among those I find that the most important one is the absence of a signal providing scheme. And that's because you can have a very high performing technology just not getting the right signals. And then you can ask, is, is this just a study of market failures uh, to a well-functioning market? And it can be seen as a study uh, of, of having more responsive participants and making more liquid markets. But I would argue that, that this study extends beyond this by focusing on the qualities that, that flexibility can offer in a sustainable energy system. That could be to increase the resource efficiency by uh, enabling increased uptake of renewable energy. But it can also be to make systems more resilient and to defer infrastructure payments, for instance, for new wires and transmission infrastructure in case you can make uh, or solve your problems by being more flexible locally. And before we end, I would like to note that the brilliant Chris Nelda was kind enough to invite me for his uh, energy transition show, which I just, in true humble bragging style, can say is one of the best podcasts around on energy and energy transition. So if you want a broader discussion on district energy and thermal storage and sector coupling, I can highly recommend to check out uh, Chris's energy transition show. Also, while sharing Chris's excellent podcasts with your friends and colleagues, you should also consider sharing this one as well. Uh, I would be so happy to see that our Nordic views on the policies of the energy transition would be spread out to more and more knowledgeable people in our network and your network as well. So thanks if you're doing that. And with that, I just want to say thank you and goodbye. And good night from the windy western Jutland where the combined heat and power plants are slowly starting up and the wind turbines are slowly winding down. This episode is part of the Flexus research project, which deals with flexibility and energy transition in cities. And Flexus is supported by the Horizon 2020 Aeronet Smart Energy Systems Initiative.